We are in the fourth lesson, the third chapter of our book, God's Big Picture. You may remember the first lesson dealt with the authority and the reason why we we do work with the scriptures, because they are God's breathed word to us. Then we took a look at creation, and then we took a look at the fall, and now we get to take a look at the patriarch of all of our lives, whether it's lineal or spiritual, and who becomes probably one of the most key characters that God raises up and uses for the advancement of his kingdom. And that's one of the reasons why the writer says this is this chapter is called The Promised Kingdom. Because everything that we have been given in Christ has come through this individual. And that's what you'll get to see today. We are going to focus in upon an overview of his life, looking at four different incidences. But we're also going to take a look at what is the covenant and see how God set up his covenant through Abraham in several different ways. And how he does it with us. And up till then. So, quick review. Kingdom of God. I should have given this to John for this morning, right? Kingdom of God is God's people and God's place under God's rule. Nice, complete, simple. We saw that in creation, in the garden. We saw it with the, uh, the perversion of the kingdom. Where they broke God's rule. We saw it through the de-evolution of uh, mankind through that. And now we are to the place where we're going to take a look at God. Having started up high, dropped down in the fall, is starting to move back on up. In fact, in your book there is a diagram. And I forget the page. But we are starting to move back up in the whole idea of the promise of God and what he's done. So, let's take a look at the video, The Promised Kingdom. So, let's take a look. I'll pick up on what the uh, speaker talked about. The book, the Bible is a book of covenants. We use the word testament, that's simply a Latin word, which is the same as covenants. And covenants are a crucial part of the whole uh, the whole Bible. Let's take a look at what it is. There are three definitions. One comes from the author Roberts, solemn agreement like a contract between parties which establish the boundaries and duties of each party. Grudem, which all of those who've taken the theology class, you obviously have this memorized and remember it, right? I shouldn't even have to put it down on paper. An unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of the relationships. Um, I just quoted that. If I were writing, I'd say between God and people. That stipulates the conditions. Youngblood, in his book, The Heart of the Old Testament, spends two chapters talking about covenant because it's so extensive. And his definition of a, a covenant is any formal agreement between God and 
man that poses legal val validity and external operatives. That sounds like it was written by a college professor, doesn't it? <laughs> but that's the idea. Eternal from young? Well, that's why I need a proofreader. Okay, eternal operative. Well, it works somewhat similar. So, that's the, yeah, I like Grudem's definition. Unchangeable, divinely imposed, legal agreement between God and individual that stipulates the condition of the relationships. Now, there are two types of covenants, especially in the time when covenants were began, we begun. Covenants are not simply a, a part of Israel. The whole area had covenants. And there were two types. There was a uh, parody, parody covenant, and that's within between equals, like a contract. You go to buy a card, you sit down with a dealer, they quote you a price, you counter quote. Finally, you bicker and you come to a price. And you say, okay, and you shake hands, and then he throws his paper at you. It's usually about one inch thick. And you have to sign and sign and sign and sign and sign. That's a covenant. You have agreed to pay X amount of dollars, however you do that, whether it's by cash, by a loan, whatever it is. And they have agreed to give you the card. But that's between equals. There is then also uh, spelling was never one of my better subjects. Suzerainty. And that is a covenant that is from a superior to an inferior. Or a conqueror to the conquered. Conan the Barbarian comes rushing into a village. Absolutely destroys their army. Takes over the village. He's not on equal terms with the villagers anymore. He's a conqueror. So he can give any kind of covenant he wants. He sets the standards. He sets the rules. And the conquered have to agree with it. This is the kind of covenants that God makes. Because there is no equality between us and God. We are on totally different planes. Not only at creation, when we still had our uh, righteousness or our uh, right standing with him. But especially now that the fall has taken place. So the conquered comes and tells the conquered, this is how we're going to live. And there is a pattern that takes place from, and this is taken from young bloods, the heart of the Old Testament. It begins with a preamble. It identifies the conqueror. I am Conan the Barbarian. I have defeated you. Then it goes into a historical prelude, prologue. 
Why is the treaty and the details of the relationship with, between the parties? This treaty is being formed because I, Conan the Barbarian, have defeated your armies. I own you now, and this is the relationship we have. You are my servants. You are my slaves. I am the master. Okay. Then there's stipulation. There's the ex explicit details of the duties and obligations imposed upon the vanquished with a call not to align oneself with another leader. You will do this. You won't do that. And they set up the whole boundaries of how you are to live underneath this covenant. And normally one of them is, I am Conan the Barbarian. I have taken you. You will not serve anybody else but me. Okay? Then there's a blessing in the curses. You are blessed if you do this. You are cursed if you do not do this. And along with the curses is, is if you violate this covenant, all terms are off. And in fact, if you violate, then I can call down the curses upon you. And I can do with you whatever I want. I am Conan the Barbarian. We have set up this covenant. You are my people. You are my slaves. You will have nobody else. If you do what I tell you to do, fine. I'll protect you. If you don't, I'm going to come back and wipe you out. That's the idea of the covenant. And that's very important when we think about the Abrahamic covenant or any of the covenants that God made with his people. And then there's a sign. In the sign, there is a making of, of the covenant. And usually... The sign had, even in any society, blood shed. There's a shedding of blood. In the case we're going to look at, circumcision. That's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. There's a shedding of blood there. When we get to Genesis 15, we'll see it even more pronounced with a covenant between Abraham and the Lord and his descendants. Then finally, you have the covenant deposited in a safe place. The place where people can go back and read it, look at it, think about it, and it will always be secure. So if the conqueror comes back and says, you remember what I said? You say, no, 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 we lost it. He'll say, no, you didn't lose it. I know exactly where it is. It's right there. It's in a safe place. I put it there. So there's no excuse about what has happened. And finally, there's a list of witnesses which document, especially in a non-Christian covenant, the gods of both parties. These are the witnesses. May they be a part of it take a look at that in the context of where we've been. There's a creation covenant. It is a covenant of grace. In fact, all of these covenants that we're going to take a look at are underneath this covenant of grace. And you see that from creation in that there is no reason why God had to create anything. 
He was perfectly happy, perfectly related to himself. He had everything he wanted. There was nothing that he lacked. Even the first act of saying, let there be light, was an act of grace on his part. And then to go and say, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let us make him male and female. Even that's gracious. Because he set up a way in which people can interact in, in a way that helps one another. But underneath that covenant, there was a covenant of works. There were blessings and curses. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, have dominion, eat whatever you want except that one tree. You stay away from that tree. And the moment you eat from that tree, off with your heads, you die. Loose translation of Genesis 1, okay? That's the uh, Gerhardt Message Bible. <laughs> the idea is there's a blessing and there's a curse. The moment you eat from that tree, you die. And the sign was just obey. The, all, all the trees, you have two trees out in the middle, they're right in the middle, they're in a safe place, surrounded by the rest of the garden. One is for good, one is for evil. When you obey, when you don't, you don't uh, eat it at all. Okay, Genesis 3 is a perversion of the creation. You may remember, I don't like the perished kingdom because the kingdom never perishes. It's from before the foundation of the world. But it was perverted. It was broken. It was twisted. And yet it's still overseen by grace. One of the Johns this morning talked about uh, John Gray. How immediately they sinned, but they didn't die. I mean, you should get to about John, uh, Genesis 3, 8, and that should be the end of the Bible. You know, that's it. Just undo everything. But he keeps going on. They died spiritually. They died in relationship. But they didn't die physically. And there still is a story yet to be unfolded in the history to come. And then he goes out and he makes the clothes. I, John did a great job. Flaying, killing, slaughtering, blood all over the place. Flaying it, hanging it up, letting it dry, letting it stink. You know, and then finally making uh, J.C. Penny clothes out of it. <laughs> that fit them perfectly right off the shelf. <laughs> Okay, but you have that idea. He makes clothes to cover their nakedness and their shame. And he still talks to them. And yes, you broke the covenant. You are cursed because of it, but you are my people. I am your God. He keeps it going. With the lineage, we have two lines. And already you begin to see a distinction within humanity. You have the sons of God, which are those who come from the third, uh, third boy born, Seth. You have the sons of men who come from Cain, who slaughtered the first one, Abel. And is given the mark that shows that he, he is protected. I mean, that's an act of grace in itself. But you have the sons of men and the sons of God. So when you get to Genesis 6 and it says... The sons of God cohabitated or had uh, 
children through the sons of men. It's not angelic beings and others. It's simply the two lines began to intermix. And then you hit Noah and the flood. They are saved from the destruction that God comes, that brings about the whole uh, land. And as a covenant, he makes them. It's a covenant of preservation. Again, grace. God could have said, well, that was fun. Maybe I'll do this again sometime. He said, no, I'm only going to do it once. You should have learned your lesson, right? He, he gives the elements, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue and have dominion. Where have we heard that before? Back at creation. Reestablishes the, re, the covenant, creation covenant, and then he gives the sign, the rainbow. Whenever you see the rainbow, that's a reminder to you and to me, God says, that I will never do this again. I may have other ways of doing it, but I will never send a flood. I will preserve. So, out of that, you have three main tribes who branch out and grow. You have Shem and his family who basically goes down the Tigris, Euphrates uh, rivers. You have Jap Japheth who goes up into Turkey in that area north of Canaan. And you have Ham who goes from Canaan all the way down into northern Africa. And those are where the tribes end up. Even in the Tower of Babel, they move out in that direction. And in fact, in the Tower of Babel, they move out throughout the whole world. So that all the world is, is beginning to be populated. Then the Bible picks up on the lineage of Shem. When you get to Genesis 11, and here you have where it says in verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Uh, as a side note, that word generations of Shem, extremely important to outline Genesis. When you read a book, when you read a book of the, the uh, Bible, one of the things you ought to be doing is looking to see how can I outline what it says here. When you do that, do not necessarily look at the chapters and the verse numbers. They were added in the, around 15, the early 1500s when people were getting their own Bibles and they had to do some comparison. It was easier to say when you're in the pulpit, well, let's look at Ephesians 6 beginning at verse 10 instead of find Ephesians and read all the way till it says this. Okay, because many times the chapters do not break where the thought breaks. Here in Genesis, the writer Moses gives us an outline. Every time there's a new section, he says, this is the generations of so-and-so. And 11 times that happens. That's a good way to, to look at it. Generations of Shem are given, and then finally you get to verse 27, where he starts another section. Now these are the generations of Terah. Now the generations, that word simply means those who come forth from an individual. And even in these generations, not all of the people who came forth from them are listed. It is more likely just a simple opportunity to give uh, uh, and encapsulize 
So Bishop Usher went through Genesis and he said, well, let's take a look at the generations and the years that were there and we can figure out when the earth was, was started. So he did his math and he came up with a starting date. Now, right now, I don't remember it because he said, well, it's only going to be these people who are mentioned. And then we realized people back then didn't record everybody. If you did the generations of the Gerhardt family, there's a generation of Andy, Skip my mother and father, generation of my grandfather, Skip my great-grandfather, generation of my great-great-grandfather, Skip four more back, and how many greats it is, that's my great-grandfather. Those are the generations of that individual. But it doesn't include everybody. I left out my brother and sister, and there's a reason why I do that. No, I'm just teasing on that one. <laughs> so, this is, a, this is a way you see every time the covenant is reaffirmed. And then you get to Abraham, where it is strengthened. And this is what we're going to take a look at. Let's take a look at the structure of the sentence, because this is... Uh, Fascinating. And the structure of the sentence is, uh, this section is what's called a chiasm. And this is prevalent through all of the scriptures. And therefore it's worth knowing. Unless you all know it comes from this letter, Greek letter, chi. You sometimes have seen people go, well, it's Xmas. And they think, oh, that's horrible. Can't, why do you do it that way? Well, chi happens to be the first letter of the name Christos. And so it's an appropriate abbreviation for Christmas. Okay, chi is a letter, and this is the way a chiism works. You have the first line here, the second line here, and then over here you have a parallel to this first line here, and a parallel to this second line over here. A, B, and it usually goes B, A. So you follow it right around this way, and this is where you pass the football out to the wide end. No, this is. <laughs> and what it is, it's a way of bringing home what the writer is trying to say. For instance, chapter 2 of Genesis. The first of these are the generations. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made the heavens and the earth. You have heavens, earth, created, were made, earth, and heaven. That's 
You will see this in the writer of Paul. And sometimes he seems mysterious because he says, you already said that. Why are you saying it again? He's, but he's putting emphasis on it. As you read the Psalms, you see this over and over again uh, in the wisdom literature. When you read through the prophets, as eventually you will be have, have the fun to do, you'll see this used over and over again. It's a writing technique, and it's important because it tells you something about what is taking place in the structure. So, on your outline, you have the basic form of and structure of this whole section from Genesis 11, 27 to 25, 11, which is the history of Abraham. It begins with Nahor and Haran's death, Saren's barrenness, marriages, and the children. Specifically, the pre-journey of Abraham. And I, I, I have to say, I didn't get this in, but this is not my construction. I borrowed it from somebody I read this week. I just forgot to write his name down. So your homework is to find out from whom I borrowed it. And if you do, you'll be amazed because it's it's, it was really hidden even for me. I just happened to come across it. Uh, but this is all this where they're leaving Tere and his family, which is Nahor, uh, Haran, and Abraham, and their family. They leave Or, which is in the southern part of uh, the Euphrates-Tigris Valley. They basically walk up the river Euphrates until they come to the place of, that is there. And at that time, what you realize is Abraham lived in the middle of a pagan culture. Because from archaeology, we've discovered this was not a God-honoring culture. And it may say to us that when they first left, Abraham may not have been a believer in God. He may be what we call a guardian. It's like the person you meet on the street with whom you say, well, do you believe in God? He says, yeah, I believe in God. God is that, that, that vapor that's all over the universe. And you're going, that's not the God I know. They had gods, and they may have been more monotheistic, but not necessarily did they have an idea of Yahweh and the God who created. Then they leave and Abraham is called to an unknown destination. Another thing about interpreting the scripture. Be imaginative. Think about it. There you are one morning. You're just getting up. Maybe from, from your bed in your house. And you hear the voice of this strange God, at least strange to you, say, I want you to leave here. Where do we go? I'm not telling you. Try putting that in your GPS and see how far you get. All right? I just want you to go. Okay. Goes to his wife at the breakfast table. Honey? Pack up the house of kids and everything else, and we're leaving. Where are we going? I don't know. Uh, 
First of all, you got to convince your wife this is a good idea. <laughs> then you got to convince the children to leave all their friends and go to someplace, I don't know, and then take off. So you begin to see maybe there's an element of belief and faith that's coming into his life. Maybe. That's A. B is God's promises and Abraham's fidelity. And we're going to take a look at Genesis 12 a little bit more. C is when he tries to pass Sarah off as his sister out of fear of Pharaoh. And, and again, use your imagination. Holy imagination. Don't let it go way out of bounds. But if you were Sarah and you went into a foreign land and your husband looks at you and says, they're going to kill me to get to you. Would you tell them that you are my sister? And Sarah would say, well, technically that's true. Technically that's true, but, but I'm your wife. No, tell them you're my sister and everything will be fine. And why did he do that? Save his own skin. Well, there's a kind of husband you want to live with, right? <laughs> Save your own skin and make me into a prostitute. Oh, great. See, that's part of what's going on back there. But even though Abraham deceives, he gets a greater wealth because the Pharaoh gives to him a huge, a huge endowment for his own wife. And it's a testing of Abraham. Then you get to D, Lot, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Family is too big. They split. Lot looks down on the valley of the Jordan and says it's a beautiful place. It's gorgeous. It's a land of milk and honey. I'm going there. Abraham, you stay up here in the mountains. And he goes down and he lives in Sodom and Gomorrah. The uh, scenery may have been great, but the people weren't that great at all. And it seems to be a... Uh, a poor choice. Just as we all know, sometimes appearances deceive. Things can look good on the out, in, outside, but on the inside, they're not. Just as we all know, we can make ourselves look good on the outside, but on the inside, there's rottenness to the bones. E, Abraham's faithful to the word, Lot and Sodom. Lot and Sodom are taken by some kings. Abraham is able to muster 318 of his men to battle. Eighth, 318 of his own men from his own estate. You realize how big that is? I mean, the Ponderosa wasn't that big. Three hundred and eighteen men are your servants, and that's just the men who could fight. He had to leave men back who would take care of everything else. That's a huge estate. Bill Gates had nothing on Abraham as in a comparison between the two. But he goes and he wins the battle, and then he comes back, and as he comes back he meets this very strange character called Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who comes from nowhere, has no ancestry, has nothing that seems to uh, connect him with the people of God, but his name means that he is a priest of God. He is also the ruler, the king of Salem, which we now know as the Jerusalem area. And when Abraham 
comes back from having won the battle. He's got all of the loot and the spoil from his battle. He says, I do not want any of this. We'll give it back to the people or we'll give it back to the, the area. Only, let's take 10% and give it to this person called Melchizedek. The first tithe of the scriptures. And you all thought the tithe was something of the law. It happened long before the law. In fact, if you take a look at Hebrews 7, 1 to 10, and you read through it, what you will discover is that it was as if Levi had given the tithe to Melchizedek because the writer says he was in the loins of Abraham. He's a couple generations away, but they considered it as if Levi had given the tithe to Melchizedek. Tithing is not something the law laid down. It's something that is the ordinary expression of your love and your devotion to God to give away 10% to the work of God. See, even Abraham shows us that long before Moses came on the scene. Then you have the Abrahamic covenant established. We're going to take a look at those two key parts of it. Abraham is faithful to his word. Um, he, he, about Lot and Solom, he, uh, God has promised that he would have his own child. And he was 99 years old when he was told that he'd have his own child. Again, think, 99 years old. I mean, I stopped having that kind of thoughts years ago. And my wife, she stopped being able to produce decades ago. And now, are we going to produce children? I mean, Isaac is not an immaculate conception. It was done in the normal way at 99 and 89 years old. There's hope for the rest of us. Um, and then he intercedes for Lot in the cities. And he comes out with that line, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Speaking to God. D1, Lot, Sodom, and Gomorrah, the destruction of the immoral land. C, C1, as we move back toward the uh, side, Sarah as Abraham's sister taken by Elimelech. You would think he learned, he should have learned in the first time not to do this. But he gets in the same position and he goes back and he falls back on his normal operating procedure. Yep, tell him you are my sister. Don't worry about it. And they get caught necking, necking out in the courtyard. You've got to understand these. They, they were very polite the way they wrote these words. But they, they were laughing in the courtyard. No, there was a reason why they were laughing in the courtyard. And Elimelech throws them out again with great wealth. And finally, you have God's promise and Abraham's fidelity. There's a birth of the elected heir. And now there's a test of the covenant, which we'll take a look. And finally, he ends, Moses ends this whole section coming back to where he began. Nahor's family, Haran, death of Sarah and Abraham. And it's time to transfer to the 
next generation. This is the generation of Isaac is the way it then begins. Okay? Let's take a look at a couple of sections which really help us understand covenant and why the Lord was beginning to bring the promised kingdom to pass. Genesis 12. You were uh, asked to read it, so I, I think you all memorized it by now, right? Oh, yeah, sure. Genesis 12, the call of Abraham. Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make, you, I make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, or they shall bless themselves. He is called to leave, abandon his family, which was difficult for the disciples when Jesus called them. It's even more difficult for Abraham to leave the rest of his family and go somewhere to where? Unknown. Dad, I don't know where we're going. We're just going. We're heading out. I'll get directions. No, you're a guy. You never ask for directions. <laughs> so, just where you're going. And they follow the Lord's instructions. They move their family, a massive fortune. They travel as the Lord leads them. It doesn't even say how the Lord leads them. At least with the Exodus, there was a pillar of fire and a cloud that told them where to go and when to stop. As far as we know, we have no idea. But the Lord sends them out with that promise that you will go and I will take you to a land I'll show you. You'll make a great nation. Yep, I'm 75 years old. No children. My wife is 65. And I'm going to be a great nation. I will make your name great. So you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Curse, you, curse those who curse you. That last verse is like a promise of protection. Anyone who curses you, I'll take care of them. Don't worry. I got them. And he sends them out. God is beginning to overcome the fall by finding a person and a line to which he can get back to the nations. He's overcoming the separation of nations in the Tower of Babylon through one person to begin with who will have a, fam a huge family and be a blessing to the nations. That's the call. Then there's the cutting of the covenant. I have a mentor who used to say this was his favorite chapter of the Bible. He said, if I were in prison and I was given one chapter out of the whole Bible, I would take Genesis 15. And most people that heard him had to say, Genesis 15, where is that? Well, it's in the book of Genesis. It's the 15th chapter. He says, I never read it. I have no idea what it says. But he says, right here is the extent of the covenant, the cutting of the covenant. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. 
One of the first things that's always said to a human being when the Lord or an angel come nearby, fear not. It's like you're cowering in a corner. I am your shield. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Your reward shall be very great. Sounds just like that original calling. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar Damascus. That word heir could be my adopted son. He's not bone of my bone, flesh from my flesh. Doesn't have my DNA. He's my adopted son. Therefore, he is the head of my house. The heir is Eleazar, and he lives in Damascus. I live down here. He's way up there. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. Member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Remember the promise? I will give you a son. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. Have you ever been out in the desert? The problem is we live in civilization. And the lights cover. And the problem is we live at, I think it's what, 800 feet elevation, 600 feet elevation. But if you get into a place where you're a mile high in the desert with no lights, you see more stars than you ever could see. And this is where Abraham is. He didn't have to worry about streetlights. DPNL was not invented yet. And he is looking at from a clear perspective at the sky. And the Lord says, you're childless now, but look, that's how many you're going to have. That's hard to believe. And, but then it comes. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He trusted what the Lord had promised, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That word counted is also translated reckoned. You go into a bank, and you give them a check, and you say, I want to deposit this into my checking account. And they do all their work, and then they give you a little slip of paper that says, you have deposited this much. They are saying, we have reckoned you this much into your account. It's a banking term. Before you were poorer than you are now, but now I've, we've reckoned you that you have this much in your account. This is a verse that is picked up by a couple other writers who use it to talk about faith. Uh, Galatians, the third chapter. which I know is in here because I saw it the other day. Paul is talking about our work after we have come to Christ. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness? 
quoting Genesis 15, which is the beginning, and it was the, the phrase that was used be, be, throughout the Reformation as the keynote phrase, counted to him as righteousness. And that's exactly what our salvation is, right? It's not that we've worked and all of a sudden God says, good boy, let me give you a gold star and go on. He said, I count the righteousness of my son to your account. Therefore, your debts have been paid and you are rich beyond your dreams because of the righteousness of my son. Why? Because Abraham believed what God had said. Right there you have the very core of the gospel uh, that the New Testament writers would pick up on and use. Verse 7 in, in chapter 15. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. The words cut in half is not through the middle, but down, right down the center of their body. And he lays them half on one side, half on the other. Again, use your imagination. You've got a path. There are the bulls. There are the lambs. There are the goats. The birds are too small. So he kills them and puts them on either side of, of there. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. You see that idea of dreadful and great darkness. You're almost brought back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the spirit hovered over the chaos, over the darkness. In the midst of the darkness there. And the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your father in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's a promise of the Exodus. And you almost see, Abraham, I've been to Egypt. That's not a great place to go to. I've been, but you're going to take my people down there and they're going to live for 400 years and then come back. That's a promise. Verse 17, and, when this, and this is the key verse. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. And the Lord made, the word is berith, B-E-R-I-Y-T-H, berith a covenant. It means cut a covenant 
with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he goes on the other lands in between. He cut. And the cutting, Abraham cut the animals. But the smoking pot and the flaming torch passing through is a theophany of God. Again, remember, this is a dream. And so he doesn't necessarily see a person, but he sees these two things come right in between those cut animals. And it's as if God said to Abraham, if I break my end of the covenant, may you cut me in two. Now, here's the promise. Cut me if I forget. Can you cut God? We have, and again, you may have learned this in the uh, theology class. The aseity of God, his oneness, his completeness. Every part fits together. You cannot break him apart. We, Wednesday nights, we're going to study the knowledge of God, to which you're all invited, and I have a book here if you want it. A little advertisement in the middle of this. That right there, he is saying, cut me if I don't do this. Break me up. We can understand different things about God, but you only see them in the light of the wholeness of who he is. You cannot separate them. So one of our, the issues of our, the church today, say, well, God is love. God is love, love, love. God is love. That's the primary characteristic. No. God is only holy and just and merciful and gracious. They all fit together. And you can't separate them like that. And God's promise to Abraham, cut me up if I ever break this covenant. Now, how long do you think you could trust in that promise? One minute? Two minutes? Forever. So that's why covenants are cut. And that's what happens. So, you have Abraham given that absolute certain promise. Then you have, in chapter 17, the characteristics of the covenant. And again, you have the, a fairly good representation of what a Cersei uh, covenant or treaty is all about. It is made, verse as uh, in chapter verse 1 of chapter 17, he was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abraham, said to him, I am God Almighty. There is the conqueror. That's his name. Walk before me and be blameless. There is a stipulation that is given to him. 
uh, and that I may make my covenant with you, I may cut my covenant with you, and may multiply you greatly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, again, catch this. He's been, his name is Abram. That means the father of one. And all of a sudden he makes a promise, you're going to be the father of many, therefore I'm going to change your name. Name changes were important in the scriptures because it shows a change of something going on within that person's life. Saul becomes Paul. Simon becomes Peter. Slippery rock becomes the rock. That's what his Simon and Peter mean. And all of a sudden it says, you can be the father of a multitude of nations. And he's going, 99, I don't have a kid. I don't, you know, I'm not living like Methuselah to 960 some years. How is this going to work? But God comes back. I'll establish my covenant. I'll give, verse 8, I'll give to you and to your offspring after you the law of your sojourners, the land of your sojourners, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And, as for, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, who, whether born in your house or brought bought with your money from your, any foreigner who is of not of your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." You see, you have the preamble, you have the history, you have the stipulations, and now you have the blessings and the curses set out by the sign. The blessing, I give you all this. It'll be for your descendants. This land will be yours. But if you disobey, it goes out. See, there is no, in a sense, unconditional covenant that God makes with Abraham about the land, about his people, it is always on the condition that they follow his commandments and his blessing. Israel will find that out later on. That when there's a kingdom and it is split and the northern kingdom of Israel begins to waver and move away from God and every king that is there is a horrendous king. Eventually, God says, I've had enough. And he sends in an Avedi army and he takes them out of the land. Judah to the south, which was back and forth, revivals and, and downturns and everything else. But eventually he says, that's enough. You have disobeyed me long enough. And he says to Jeremiah, don't even pray for these people. Don't even tell them they have an opportunity to repent and stay here. 
I'm taking them out. Why? Because they had violated the covenant. And though the males had their foreskin circumcised, it was a problem of the heart. And Paul later on will make that same uh, point when he says, it is not those who are born of the lineage of Abraham that are his children, but those who are born from the seed of Abraham. That is what the word seed has meant throughout all of this, his offspring, his singular offspring. See, there's a difference between that word generations and the people that follow. And a different word is used for seed. The one person who will be used to fulfill what you want. And of course in Galatians, Paul says, and that seed is Christ. We're back to the idea in Christ. In Christ, we are forgiven. Because he is the only one who has ever fulfilled the terms of the covenant. He's the only one who can give to us a righteousness, the imputed, the alien righteousness that we can have in order to be right with God. And it comes back right to this section right here. That's why this, this is so important. Uh, and the sign of circumcision, not only to their children, but to anyone who comes into the land and wants to live there. We have had uh, two boys by natural means. And the second or third day in the hospital, we had to have them circumcised. We decided. It didn't have to, but we decided. They didn't like it. It was bloody. It hurt. Now suppose you're 45 and you have to be circumcised. That really hurts. And this is, but that's the covenant. That's the sign of what God is going to do. Something has to be cut off. The flesh of uh, the hardness of your heart has to be cut off so that it can become soft. That's what it meant. Uh, to identify as initiation, to put the call of, uh, on your life. Then we come to that part which always befuddles people. There's a challenge of the covenant, Genesis 22. I was speaking to a group of teenagers at a weekend retreat a long time ago. And uh, we had some smart Alex there. We were talking about the Trinity for some reason, and one of them looks at me and says, why is there a Trinity? And I look at him with a blank stare. I said, you know, I've gone through seminary. I've always known of what is the Trinity, and I have a somewhat good idea of how to explain it. But I've never heard anyone say, why the Trinity? And then like a flash, like a word of knowledge or something said, well, you can't love one person. You've got to have at least two. If you're going to be a God of love, there's got to be other persons there to love. And therefore, you need at least two, and three is even better. Okay? And when you're perfect, you can love perfectly. You don't have to worry about fights. They also asked, because we studied this, this passage, they said, what if that was your child? 
What if God woke you up tonight and said, you take your oldest boy, Daniel, and you take him out, find a hill, build an altar, put him on top of it, which had been really different. Well, it wouldn't have been too bad that because we were a lot younger. Now he's bigger and stronger than I am. He would put me on the altar <laughs> and sacrifice him for my behalf. And I had to let him, yeah, if God told me to do that, I'd have to do it. I, but I would check very carefully that that was a word from the Lord. And it wasn't some other influence in my life. But here you have Abraham, who is probably somewhere around 122, 125 years old. His son is 22 to 25. He's not a little kid. He's not a teenager. He's a big, strapping boy. But he knows the voice of the Lord. And it says, after these things, verse 1 of chapter 22, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Here am I. First one, Abraham. That's to get his attention. And Abraham says, here I am. He said, and listen to this, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God wanted and was extremely specific. Take your son. Okay, I got two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Which one? Your only son. Well, Ishmael came from Hagar. Not quite his only son through Sarah. Isaac even names him. Because there's no way that he could wiggle out of this. Whom you love. And, you know, Isaac was the apple of his father's eye. This is a God, this is a son of promise. And go offer him as a sacrifice. Now note the speed of, of uh, obeying. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood from the bur for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. The next morning. Again, use your imagination. This is the son of your promise. You're 122, 25 years old. You were, it was providential that you had your first child. You think you're going to have a second child? Probably not. Do you think he slept that night? When it says he got up early in the morning, this was not 7 o'clock. I think he got up at 3 o'clock before the sun rose, and they were off. And then it says, for three days... On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. What was going on in his mind for three days? He wasn't thinking about this year's crop and the animals that he left back. He's probably going, Lord, how are you going to do this? And he was probably arguing with God. How are you going to pull this off? What are you doing? This is my son, my only son, Isaac, the one I love, the promised son. Why are you going to have him killed? And this is going through his mind. 
he probably came to some kind of idea that some way the Lord was going to give him back. Because in verse 5 it says, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Well, now, let's see. The last time I saw one of these burnt offerings, the offering stayed dead. I mean, it didn't get up off the altar. It was smoke and fire, and it was ashes by the time we were finished. But I and the boy are going to come back. He obviously was trusting God to do something. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that Abraham believed that God could even resurrect his son from the dead. See, now all of a sudden, the idea of resurrection is, invo is invoked into the scriptures. It's brought into there. I mean, you have to read behind the lines. You've got to think about what's going on. But use your imagination and you discover that's exactly what took place. And then he prepares the offer. He builds the altar. He puts the wood on. He gets it all together. And again, this is amazing to me. A 122-year-old man can take on a 22-year-old strapping boy and he wrestles him and ties him up and he sticks him on the altar. If I'm 122, I'm going to have trouble. I'm going to wheeze up that hill and try to pick him up and put him on the altar. I don't know. But then he takes a knife and he's ready to plunge. And the Lord says, wait, Abraham, cries out again. And he... The Lord offers, what's he offer? A ram. A lamb for the burnt offering. And he gives him exactly what he needs. And again, why a lamb? Behold this lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. A substitute. And all of a sudden, and, and, and now Abraham is realizing the offerings are not simply to show obedience, but they are a substitute for the, his own sin and the sin of his people. And all these, all these themes that are going on in the rest of the scripture come out through Abraham. And it's all because of the covenant. Yes, sir. I see. My next point. Okay. Again, imagination. You're Isaac. You just carried the wood. Actually, you didn't even carry the wood and the torches. Your, your father did. You get up to the top. He puts together, and then he turns around, and he grabs you. And this is not a father's hug. He probably tried to say, Isaac, look. And when you turn around, he goes from back. So, he, so he's, he's got some leverage on you. Yeah, what would, at that moment, what would you be like with Isaac? Dad, Dad, what are you doing? Ties him up, puts him on the altar. Dad, you're going to sacrifice me? Hold it. I'm your promised son. The covenant's coming through me. What are you doing? What are you doing? I mean, Isaac just didn't go, oh, isn't this nice? Oh, what a pretty party we're having here. He was not English. <laughs> Okay, he's probably fine. But think about later on, after it's gone and they come back, he's remembering exactly what God did. 
We don't know a lot about Isaac. There's not a lot written about him. We know more about Jacob than Isaac. But that had to have a uh, eternal effect upon his psyche and his mind. God was willing to sacrifice me, but somehow he would resurrect me. At the same time, he offered a sacrifice on my behalf. Grace. Yeah, if you know what's happening. <laughs> you, you no, Deanna, you had it first. Possibly, but you can always because it's silent. Because it's silent, you can also look at it and say he had no idea what was going on. And all of a sudden he's thrown on the altar. What would your normal response be? Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't care how much you trust your father. What would your normal response be? See, sometimes we, we and this has been a problem with Sunday school, we super spiritualize these. What would, you, what would a person's normal response to being thrown on an altar with a knife poised to cut into you? Okay? That's, that's, that's open to debate. But you get the idea. What, what would I be like? Okay? I wouldn't go to the cross. I wouldn't die for what I just said. But it's a normal... <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, because I took some out of the cookie jar. Okay. You two can't sit together anymore. <laughs> okay, but normal sacrifices would have had a lamb. No matter whatever sacrifice. So, yeah, he's got the wood, there's a fire, here's the altar. The normal response would, Dad, we forgot the lamb. Where is it? And, you know, being a good outdoorsman, he said, well, we'll find one. No. <laughs> He'd, that would be a normal question. We've got... Yeah, no, he had no idea. But when you get tackled by your father, thrown on an altar, wrapped up, tied up, because, you you know, if you throw a kid on an altar and you know he's going to get... He's not going to sit there. Normal human response. Tied him up, put him on there. That's the moment he said, whoa, I'm the lamb. <laughs> okay, not a good thing. Yeah. And it wasn't until the knife was about ready to come down that, Ab that God stops him. Why? He was testing his faith. I have given you a promise. The promise is I will give you a name, you will be a great nation, you will be a blessing to many nations. I have cut this covenant with you. If I disavow this, you are able to cut me up. I've given you the sign, I've given you the, the progeny by which this will be, the begin to, to move forward. I've given you everything you need. Are you going to trust me enough to give it all up? knowing who 
God's saying, knowing who I am and what I can do. You know, what's that say about our Christian life? Yeah, we, we believe we are Christians because we believe the promise of God and the promises that Christ lived, died, was buried and resurrected for our sin, for our salvation. That's the promise. One, do we really trust that promise? Or is it simply something we've been given and we do every Sunday? And when push comes to shove, and it comes to the place of somebody questioning and pushing us on that, are we willing to do, will we give up on it? Will we acquiesce to the push? Or will we stand firm? And Abraham is one of the first illustrations, probably the first illustration in the Bible of standing firm, even if it meant the life of his son, his only son Isaac, whom you love. He was willing to stand. Right now we have brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe this morning, well, would have been their morning, which is our last night, who uh, may have had people come walking into their their church and say, if you don't believe in Jesus, get out, or we're going to shoot the rest. We don't have that problem here. It's much more subtle. You really believe that? How can you believe in a dead Jew who lived 2,000 years ago? Yeah, There is no God. Come on. Get with it. We live in the 21st century. <laughs> so, that's the beauty of Abraham is it really begins to encapsulate the rest of the story. And I promise you, as you look with your homework, we are going to pick up the pace. We've spent three weeks and 25 chapters of the first book. But you have to have that foundation. From here... We go lickety-split. In fact, next week we go from uh, Isaac all the way through to the building of the temple. And the week after, or the, t the time after that, let's see, February 4th, we're doing that. The time after that, which I think is February 25, we are going to go from the, the temple all the way through to the last king. We're going to cover a few hundred, uh, a few hundred years, as we look at it, because we're just we're building on what you already found in all of this, and in what's here. Amen.